News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, things are certainly shifting in the political climate when it comes to dealing with the trucker protests and convoys. But how do Canadians feel about the situation? Has that been changing over the last couple of weeks? Well, pollsters have been asking that. And Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Global Public Affairs, joins us now with the latest. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. Has it been hard for you to figure out, like, at what point do you ask people what's going on because opinions are changing so much? Well, yeah, just like everybody else, when the when the uh, protests first started, uh, it, we thought it was going to be like a weekend and done. Uh, but when it started to settle in, it, obviously there was something more significant going on, and particularly now that it's expanded to the borders, uh, we felt it was time to get back in the field and, and figure out what Canadians are thinking. And we had a few surprises in our in our numbers. Okay, yeah, let's talk about those. What kind of surprises? Well, the first thing is um, the degree of separation that exists between people feeling that the frustration justifies some form of protest and this specific protest. So there's a lot of sympathy out there. 46% of Canadians say that they actually sympathize with the frustration that the, that the truckers are, 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 are expressing. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to the specific tactics that they're using, for example, some of the, um, you know, the more questionable uh, uh, racist things that people have been saying, some of the things that have been happening on the front lines, that support collapses quite a bit. goes down to only about 24%. But that's still a quarter of Canadians, in spite of that, saying, I sympathize with what I'm seeing. Right. Okay. And what about, it's, it's morphed, right? So we're seeing a different protest than what it might have started out as. And has that changed people's opinion? How do they view it in terms of the impact it's having on democracy in Canada? Well, right now, it's, it's really a 60-40 proposition. So any question that you go out and you ask about anything related to the protest, and there's a couple where it's a bit different, but just about anything that you ask is 60-40. You get 60% of the population saying, I don't like this, and 40% of the population saying, you know what? There's something going on here that really resonates with how I'm feeling. Uh, so uh, the places where you see it drop off are on things like, for example, should the prime minister be at least having a conversation with the protesters? Fifth, only 53% of Canadians say no. So that means 47% are actually on the other side. Um, and some of the things that have to do with, you know, even the question about whether or not this is a fundamental attack on our democracy, 50-50 proposition. Half the population thinks that it is, and half the population thinks that it isn't. Some some of the more extreme rhetoric that's been coming out, even in terms of criticizing what the what the, uh, what the truckers are up to, Canadians are pretty divided on it. Interesting. So, and so, when was this polling done? It was done this week. So it was after we went through the the last weekend, and just as the uh, the border protests were starting to ramp up. Okay. And so, how do people view this protest, Daryl? What do they see it as? They see it as uh, 40, you know, close to half the population. As I said before, it's 60, 40 pop proposition. So let's just say, you know, 45% uh, of the population says there's the frustration that I'm feeling right now because we've gone through, we're all in this together to uh, I'm really tired of this and I'm fatigued to genuine frustration now. Right. And it's not just about the, the, the and, and this is where I think some of the mistake is being made in, in terms of how this is being analyzed. It's not specifically about anti-vax issues or masks or vaccine mandates or any of those things. It's this general sense that we're seeing in the country right now that things are just not going well. So it's inflation, it's the cost of housing, it's, it's a whole series of things that, that add up into this frustration. So that general mood is where the truckers are connecting. 
on all of the specifics, that's when it becomes a problem. Okay, so overall we say we believe, you know, that these are mostly economically disadvantaged Canadians talking about their struggles. Yeah, and that's what we're finding in the polls. I mean, so about 40% saying, you know, well, these are economically disadvantaged Canadians. And then the other side saying, no, nah, it's a bunch of bigots and anti-vaxxers. So it's it's this division, it's the frustration, it's kind of this this mood that's around all of this that, that is resonating with a significant number of Canadians. But interestingly enough, in British Columbia, the lowest support numbers in the country. Really? So, you know, if it's 46, yeah, if it's 46 on average in British Columbia right now, it's 36. But right, na- right next door in Alberta, it's 58% uh, support. Also in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Okay, so there's, there's geographic divisions on this too. So what else was interesting about the BC results? Well, British Columbians, and I don't know if it's because they have more experience with protests. Maybe people, you know, particularly in Vancouver and, and people living in the southern part of the province, have more experience with uh, uh, the importance of the border. Maybe, who knows, but they're just, it's just not resonating to the same degree. And, and we tend to find this in a lot of polling, that, uh, that uh, actually all our polling, that British Columbia actually looks more like Ontario than it looks like the rest of Western Canada. Isn't that interesting? Okay, there was one other question that I thought was really interesting that you asked about. And this was, you know, whether or not people think these protests are just like other protests we have seen. And again, the majority are saying, no, these are not like uh, the Indigenous protests or Black Lives Matter. But there were quite a few people who agreed. Yeah, 37% said that exactly the same as is what we were seeing on the the other protests. And people will, might sit back and say, well, that means 63% is on the other side of this. Well, right. take 37% and mul- multiply that by uh, 32 million adult Canadians. That's a really big number. That's like over 10 million people. And it pretty much who, reflects who say, what we're seeing. No, it's just the same. Right, that pretty yeah, much reflects just, everything we're seeing in the last couple yeah. weeks. 60-40. And, and if you go to Conservative Party supporters right now, their, their belief in that is much higher. So that message actually resonates with this with them. This is no different than any of those other types of protests. Daryl, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, the protests that we have been seeing in Canada are, what, at the end of their second week now? And the economic impact is definitely being felt to the point where we're talking auto industry slowdowns at plants in southern Ontario because of the protests and the blocking of the Ambassador Bridge, that Detroit-Windsor border crossing, which is the largest in, you know, between Canada and the United States. And it's causing quite a lot of problems, so much so that now the Biden administration is urging Prime Minister Trudeau's government to do something, to use their federal powers to end the blockade. To talk more about this uh, reaction down in the United States, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is the message from the White House here? Well, uh, the message from the White House is that Ottawa needs to do something to be able to move these trucks away and to get the free flow of goods moving back and forth across the border. Because you're right, the Ambassador Bridge linking Windsor and Detroit uh, is the most important and most critical, uh, you know, connection, connection link between the two countries, especially when it comes to trade. So last night, uh, I reached out to the White House. I reached out to the President's National Security Council, uh, and they told me that uh, members from the uh, Department of Transportation and the Cabinet 
members from the uh, Department of Homeland Security were in contact with their Canadian counterparts to try uh, and offer some kind of assistance and push Ottawa to use any kind of federal powers it may have. So this is now a story that has not only broken through, you know, the Republican circles in the U.S., it's made its way to the highest levels of government, fearful that there's going to be some kind of economic impact. Right. So what is it that they can do, though? Like, what kind of support can they offer? Well, look, they, you know, it, they can't tell Ottawa what to do. They can't, in, you know, enforce some kind of power that the U.S. has that maybe Ottawa doesn't have. But what they can do is put together a coordinated response. So ultimately, uh, if if uh, if Canadian counterparts are able to kind of say this is what's going on, the U.S. can be better prepared if and when a convoy or a blockade were to start up at a border on the U.S. side or at a port of entry on the U.S. side or at something like the Super Bowl uh, this weekend, where we've already seen members of the DHS surge out towards uh, the West Coast. So it's it's a kind of communication uh, uh, event between the two, and it's an opportunity for them to work in tandem. Because again, this is a this is a problem in Ontario. It's a problem at borders, and it is a growing problem now in the states that are connected to those sites. Right. And are the protests themselves also spreading? I know I keep hearing and reading about, you know, sympathy protests, uh, one starting perhaps even at the Super Bowl on Sunday. Yeah, look, there's nothing that's been on the ground yet. There's not any kind of, uh, you know, protest that's been seen, but there are grassroots movements that are starting to sprout up around, uh, you know, dark corners of the internet to try and get the logistics together to possibly put a convoy in place. You're right, potentially at the Super Bowl this weekend. That's something that Department of Homeland Security and that local enforcement in LA are aware of that could take place. But the issue with it is that it's something that may be in LA for a period of time before it moves west to east. And there are calls for a protest or a convoy to take place in D.C. in and around the beginning of March when Joe Biden would make his first State of the Union address to uh, Congress. We've heard from the Department of Homeland Security and we've heard from local D.C. officials saying that they have nothing that they're able to pinpoint yet. They're simply calling this planned, potential, aspirational First Amendment demonstrative activity. Uh, but they say that whatever does happen, if it happens, it's not going to get in the way of law enforcement. It's not going to get in the way of day-to-day activities in Washington. But again, that's still several weeks out with nothing nothing on the ground happening yet it's hard to say what's going to happen Reggie I can't I can't ever think of another situation that we've seen like this before with the United States either opposition politicians weighing in on what's happening in Canada or the government weighing in on what is happening in Canada does this kind of just highlight perhaps the economic ties here between these two countries well I mean look a lot of times Canadian stories don't really register down here the fact that this one is uh, is concerning on a couple of different levels we talked to the former uh, US ambassador to Canada last week and he was really concerned about the fact that there are so many Republican politicians that are weighing in uh, in an inappropriate way to kind of prop up sometimes misinformation and disinformation that's being pushed outside uh, of these convoys and these blockades. But the fact that you have kind of a bipartisan push from from lawmakers up to the president to take notice of this situation shows that there is still kind of an interconnectivity between the two countries that needs to always be worked on and can't be really taken for granted here. Uh, but the fact that you have this story that's being broadcast in kind of two different avenues that are parallel to each other, one based on reality, one kind of not based on reality, is problematic in the U.S. because it means that these protests can be taken out of context and potentially pose more concern, you know, from coast to coast down here. All right, Reggie, thank you for the update. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. So the fact that the protests moved to the Ambassador Bridge and kind of blocked that very critical border crossing, that's had a huge impact 
not just in southern Ontario, but across the country, because you're talking about parts that people need for manufacturing. And that's why the auto industry has seen a showdown. And that has long term implications for Canadian manufacturing. If the United States can't trust that trade between the two countries, well, why would they have their plants here, right? Why not just move them down to the United States? So yeah, you can bet something's going to change with that Ambassador Bridge protest that's going on in the next 48 hours for sure. But we'll talk more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, we started to get a look at the new census data. This is what shaped our communities over the last five years, which places were growing, which places weren't growing as much. And what we learned is that the community of Langford on the southern part of Vancouver Island is among the fastest growing communities in the province. This suburb of Victoria has a population of just over 46,000 people, but it's seen a 30% population increase since 2016. So where did all these people come from and where are all these people living? Because that sounds to me like it would be a strain right on your housing. What has that done to affordability? We keep hearing that Langford is doing things differently. So we thought, let's go directly to the source and find out more about that. Joining us now is Stuart Young, the mayor of Langford. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Yeah, good morning. I'm guessing that the census data did not surprise you in the slightest. No, no, we've been... uh obviously battling this housing crisis and we took it head on and said well we got to build some affordable housing for families and uh, the regional growth strategy for southern Vancouver Island uh, you know from 25 years ago said that Langford you know being central and a lot of land base around it would take most of the development and what they've said 25 years ago is happening and you know we're uh, taking it in a stride because we we've been building four or five six percent a year for 20 years now so it uh, used to be a kind of a, a rundown uh community you know they called it dog patch and all the other names they were doing <laughs> it and so yeah oh yeah like so when i first came mayor 30 years ago um we took on you know 20 percent unemployment no new developments no new businesses coming to town so we had to really rejig langford and actually make it something where you'd be proud to live in and not just grow up there and move away. Right. But Mayor Young, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to get the community behind the fact that you are approving all of this development. How did you do that? Well, everybody comes from somewhere and they liked their opportunity to come and buy affordable housing in Langford. Like 25 years ago, we approved suites and houses before anybody, you know, because they were there. Everybody was, you know, buying a house because they could afford it if they had a suite. And yet our suites were illegal and we had people running around kicking people out of suites. And so when we got in, we said, no, no more of that. Obviously, it's a type of housing that's required, uh, you know, in the 21st century. So we, we actually uh, approved that right away and got some excitement going and trying to make things, you know, better for families. Uh, we brought in sewers and then that sort of helped us. Uh, kind of design a downtown core and, you know, and do some uh, nice neighborhood planning, uh, bringing in the recreation. Uh, we've got like a now a 10,000 seat uh, stadium. It'll be done when it's finished. Uh, we've got 6,000 seats now. We've got Pacific FC, the national uh, soccer uh, right. um, company that's there. And so there's a lot of stuff going on, not just housing. We're building so much recreation and parks and stuff like that that people want to move out here. We've got four brand new schools in the last four years. Uh, We've got two more coming. So it's an exciting time because everything's new and there's a lot of activity. And, 
you know, we're building as fast as we can and we could build faster because the demand is there. Like right. people but, are coming from all over. So. But you're also helping people buy too, right? Like there, yes. you've taken some extraordinary steps. It's not just all development, all build things. Mm-hmm. We've always had an affordable housing committee and attainable housing, which means that it's trying to get people into homes, not trying to just give people places to stay for free. What we're doing is working with the development community and saying, if you're a hardworking person in Langford, you've lived in Langford for two years, we'll give you up to $17,500 as your down payment onto a two bedroom or a one bedroom condo. And we've worked on that or townhouse. Um, so we're working with the development community and a bunch are going to be coming online here. We've approved a bunch. So you're going to start to see um, people that are renting and paying like $2,000, $2,300 a month for a two bedroom. They can transition into a two bedroom condo that would cost them between four and four fifty, and a one bedroom around 300,000. And they're specifically built for making sure that people can transition and get into the housing market and the equity because that's where we we talked to all the people in Langford and we're going what's the biggest problem well housing is like eight hundred thousand dollars for a brand new house in Langford a million dollars a lot of people can't afford that and there's no stepping stone so we've had to create that and and that's our housing program now so we've we uh, work with the development community it's all paid for by the development as somebody builds they pay a little fee per unit and then we take that fee we uh, put it back into the mix and help people that are living in Langford transition into uh, housing. How do you prevent the speculation part of the real estate market like how do you obviously when it's a community is as hot as Langford is right now people will come in they'll buy for investment they'll think it looks how do you prevent all that happening and driving up prices and causing problems? Well it's actually worked the opposite because we roll out the red carpet for businesses to move to Langford uh, development. We're not uh, anti-development. We don't hate developers. We know that they give us the parks, the streetlights, the sidewalks as part of their development. So when they're building in Langford, they're investing in Langford, but we're really good at working with our community and looking at the needs of what our community uh, wants and what we're lacking and we try and go after it like we didn't have enough condos so we said well we want to uh, incentivize building condos we talked to the development and say we don't have enough we want home ownership not just rental buildings because we built a lot of rentals and then we said okay well we need to have a balance and the development community just works with us and it's it's there's no really a lot of speculation everybody's living in the homes that they're buying these are right like these are de- desperate people looking for a place to get a home ownership in a nice community where we're safe. We've got lots of police officers. We don't shy away from that. We put lots out on the streets. We make it safe. We make sure that we have lots of recreation and just such a bonus with the provincial government giving us all these new schools. I mean, four new schools is unheard right. of in four years and two more on the way. And and th- those are big things. And we're hoping to get a university here approved here uh, with the provincial government. And so you're going to start to see a real change in our downtown core. And we are now, uh, we've been building fast, but a lot of it's been single family homes and, uh, apartment blocks. And so now we're going higher in our downtown core. We've identified the area. So there's 26 story, 24 story, 20 story buildings now going in. But doesn't anybody ever come to your meetings and say too much too fast? (laughs) Because I feel like that happens at every other city council meeting. How do you, it happens 
all the time and every city is the same. The problem is, is you've got to look at, we're in an affordable housing crisis and sometimes those people that are complaining that they may have a valid point. The problem with it is, is they moved in because we actually made housing for them. We've grown so fast that these neighborhoods are actually new people. And so it's really hard for them to say, well, you know, I'm not going to support anybody else moving to Langford. We do it because they don't generally say that. They're actually very inclusionary. Like the residents of Langford are pretty good. Like they understand the crisis that families are having, that they need to home. And they're very fortunate that they can actually buy a home in Langford. And we talk about it all the time. So it's like it's it's we don't get a lot of opposition for that because people are happy. Yeah, you get the ones that are on their two acre houses, you know, million dollar homes, two million dollar homes. And they go, we don't want this to happen. And I'm going, well, yeah, you got your huge acres that nobody can afford. But people, families need housing. You can't just leave them in uh, areas where they they can't flourish and get into some equity. And that's what we're about is the equity. Like we really try and make families get a job in Langford buy a house in Langford, go recreate in Langford, and that's a healthy community. And we know that, and that's what we push really hard for. But Mary Young, okay, listening to you right now, I know people who are like, I'm ready to move to Langford. But how, how mm-hmm. do, uh, do you realize that like, you're going to have a lot of people uh, attracting attention to Langford now with all of this attention about the census? and th- Do you have room for everybody else who wants to show up now? Oh, yeah. We, we, we build a lot of uh, units. We're not shy about uh, making sure that we understand what a crisis is. And we're in a housing crisis. And if Lankford has to build more and we're capable of doing it and doing our part, we're doing more than our part. But you know what? It's an exciting time and it's an exciting place to live in Lankford. We've got three lakes in our downtown core. We've got property around it. And, hey, we're short of people. Like, we're short of, like, All right. we've got so many, we got so many jobs right now that are required. We're, we need actual people to move to Lankford to actually fill in the jobs that are happening. It's, it's actually working very well on the economic side okay. as well as the uh, housing. And we've managed it for 25 years. We've taken Langford from this, you know, sleepy little nothing with everybody growing up out here and moving away right. to actually having your family be able to live here. And that's really great to that's see. And, and the people are happy. Like, generally, um, the people are happy here. Okay, well, you know what? Congratulations. And I think you've just right. sold a whole lot more people on moving to Langford. Okay. So thank you for your time this morning. All right. Okay, thanks. Yep, that now. is Mayor Stuart Young, the mayor of Langford. Why Why can't other city councils have an attitude like that? That was quite something, right? I'm ready to move to Langford. How about you? You want to weigh in? Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the stats are pretty shocking when you add them up, all these stories in the news. 20 gang-related shootings, four deaths in 40 days. That's what's happening right now in Metro Vancouver. And Crime Stoppers is issuing an urgent plea for anonymous tips in these cases. So they're comparing this to what we saw, you know, versus what we've seen in previous years when it comes to these gang shootings. We're hearing about more in the news even this morning. Let's talk more about what is going on here now. Joining us now is Doug Spencer, gang expert, retired from the Vancouver Police Department. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Is something going on? Like, is there some heightened kind of conflict going on out there that we're just starting to figure out? No, it's kind of been going like this for a couple of years now. It's just there's a large number of young people uh, getting involved in the drug world, in the gang world. And that, that do you think that's all we're seeing here? It's just the same old, same old? Yeah, it's a, a back and forth thing. They're, they're always vying for... Uh, control of basically the addicts, right? They're they're 
looking for a customer base to buy their product. And if people interfere in that, the guns come out now. So when we hear about a big bus, like that big fentanyl bus that's been in the news in the last 24 hours, $30 million worth of fentanyl, what goes on behind the scenes when something like that happens? Does that make a difference? Oh, certainly. There's uh, a lack of the product for a, a short time and give that given area, right? Maple Ridge or wherever it happens. And uh, other people come in with the product and they try and take over the addicts. So, um, yeah, it, it's getting, it's just so ruthless now. There, there's no morals. They're shooting girlfriends and wives. That, yeah, the moral compass has just been thrown out the window. Is that a change? Would you say that's happened in the last year or two? Yeah, I would even say the last four or five years that it's really been getting bad. That, uh, you know, they, they send these rank amateurs out. They, the kids who are involved in this and the, the victims and the shooters, they're really young, right? They're not 30-year-old guys. They're, those guys are like made members of the gang. They're the guys that spend the money. It's the young kids, you know, 16 to 25. They're the ones that are doing it. So they're in the crosshairs of the other gang's rifle, right? Right. So you get a big bust, like what we hear about, and then that opens up like a potential vacuum, which means that more people fight for that space. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I, I knew probably seven or eight years ago, I had sources telling me about this fentanyl and car fentanyl and all this stuff. And then one of them actually got out of the game. He says, it's going to get so bad, I'm out. And he's off living his own life now with married with kids and he's safe. Right? How, how did he manage that? That was not a rare situation to be able to get out. It is, but it, it kind of tells you what it was like for somebody like that to get out of it. Um, he saw it coming, right? How many, but so many other people are more interested, as you say, like young people more interested in making their way in the business rather than getting out of the business. Yeah. They, well, they see it as this, instantaneous uh, way to money and glamour and status and stuff. A lot of these kids are lacking. Um, you know, they're not involved in physical lit- literacy and and having proper things they're doing, and they're not motivated properly. They're motivated out of greed, right? They want money. They want nice cars. They want all this stuff instantly. And that is not going away anytime soon. Doug, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. You're more than welcome. That's Doug Spencer, gang expert, retired from the Vancouver Police Department, talking about this recent violent trend. I can't even say trend. It just kind of pops up. It gets worse every once in a while. That's what we're seeing right now. 20 gang-related shootings, four deaths in 40 days. It's almost like sometimes you become immune to hearing it in the news, but when you add it up like that, it is a shockingly high number. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this week we've got some shocking news, and that is that the BC Coroner Service released their drug death data for 2021. 2,224 people lost their lives to an overdose, and sadly, it was the largest number we have ever seen in one year in this province. We have had this declared as a public health emergency for more than five years now, but we are not making any progress. 
we wanted to get a little bit deeper into the numbers. So joining us now is Lisa LaPointe, BC's Chief Coroner. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Simi. This must be frustrating for you as well, is that every month you come out and you do these numbers and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. What is happening out there? Well, it is tremendously frustrating and it's sad. It's, you know, there, we, we see the numbers and the numbers are terrible and they're shocking. But of course, every number represents a person and every person represents a family and a community. So, you know, my agency deals with the families and the communities and, uh, and it is hard. It is very hard to see the, the pain and suffering um, in families around the loss of a loved one due to toxic drugs. So, um, you know, really, the, the, the drug crisis in our province was precipitated by the arrival of illicit fentanyl. Illicit fentanyl continues to dominate in terms of um, being present in the systems of those who die of toxic drugs. So uh, 83% of those who died in 2021 uh, showed uh, positive results for fentanyl, and over the last five years, 80, uh, 80% of those who die have right. been positive for fentanyl. And then more recently, we're now seeing benzodiazepines enter the illicit market in significant numbers, and that is hugely concerning. It is highly addictive and does not respond uh, to naloxone the same way that opioids do. Okay, so that definitely, uh, an alarm bell is ringing on that one. So you said naloxone mm-hmm. is not as effective. How much of this benzodiazepine are we seeing? Well, in uh, samples that we did uh, over the last several months, where initially uh, a few months ago we saw 15% of our positive, uh, toxicology tests coming back positive for benzodiazepine, in six months that had increased to 50%. So um, very, very concerning. Wow. And of course, that's not just, yeah, not just something we're seeing, but ambulance paramedics are seeing that as well and, and people who provide services and drug testing. So yeah, really, really concerning. And you said naloxone is not as effective for benzodiazepine. So what kind of, what do we have in our arsenal then? Well, right now we don't have anything on an urgent basis. Um, and, and, you know, I think that may explain why we have People dying. Our, you know, our ambulance paramedics aren't equipped with a with um, an agent like naloxone, which worked so effectively for. Well, it worked so effectively for heroin. Fentanyl was another thing because fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin was. There is very little heroin available in our province anymore. And then, um, in addition, we're now seeing carfentanil, which is a hundred times stronger than fentanyl. We saw. Um, we're seeing increasing numbers of that. Um, yeah, yeah. So hmm. it's it's um. I, and I really think you know the point is, the illicit drug market is highly unpredictable. It is not regulated as we know it never has been, and so people, although they think they may know what they're buying, they think they may know their dealer, they may be making efforts to keep themselves safe. Um, it's very very challenging right now, and um, and of course that's the call. That's the reason for the call for safe supply. Yeah, and what is what's changing in the demographics of the people that we are losing? Are we for the longest time it was men of a certain age group? Has that changed? Uh, men still are predominantly who we're seeing affected. Men between at the ages of thirty and fifty nine still represent the largest number of people dying. But we are increasingly seeing uh, women, uh, larger numbers of women, and we are seeing older people. Uh, so men, again, men in their fifties, six and sixties, um, and some in their seventies. So uh, I'm not 
you know, it's hard to puzzle out these things at this stage of the game. Sometimes you only need, uh, you know, years of research to figure out wh- why these trends are happening. Um, you know, there's a lot of despair out there, as we know. Yeah. There's a there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, sadness, and um, whether people are, we know anecdotally from our coroners that they are seeing people who have been in recovery for many many years and now uh, turning to substance use again, and of course the the substances that are available in the black market now are not the same substances people used even five or six years ago. So, um, yeah, hmm. highly unpredictable. Okay. Yeah, is our really system, scary. It is really scary because, I mean, is our system even able to adapt to this? You mentioned the benzodiazepine example. If you are seeing that huge increase in a three to six month period, how can our system possibly keep up with that? Well, that's the challenge, of course, because we're always behind. You know, we we start to see the trends in the postmortem results uh, and and drug testing, and then trying to pivot as quickly as we po- as possible as, as quickly as we possibly can. Sorry. Um, so it, it is a matter of uh, I think urgency of really keeping our eye on this issue as an urgent matter that is really significantly impacting the health, not only of those who use drugs, but the health of our communities, um, the life um, you know, the life expectancy in our province, um, the potential years of life lost, um, and we need to pivot quickly. And we know we can. We, you know, we saw it with the COVID response. That was a an urgent response, and um, and it takes it takes effort uh, and concentrated will, but um, but we can do it. Okay, and how do we do that then? I know you've talked about safe supply, but but why? And how how broad does safe supply have to be to make a dent in this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and and the honest answer is we don't know. We have not had the opportunity to see many people um, enrolled in programs for safe supply. It's still very, very limited. Where we have seen it, there are some small programs, in uh, one in Victoria and some in Vancouver, has been very successful. Very successful at uh, keeping the people who are engaged in the program alive and safe and in fact uh, becoming quite stabilized because they're no longer searching every day for their substance or having to do you know use their their whatever available monies they have or um or or steal for that matter not that i'm suggesting that any everybody who uses drugs um you know is a marginalized person or or needs to steal that's certainly not the case but um but it is successful and you know if you if you look at it really just from a um, a logical perspective. If what's killing people is a toxic supply, and we have an opportunity to provide a regulated safe supply, then um, logically right. that makes sense. You you also talked about in your press conference about the comparison to alcohol. Is there a comparison here? Oh, absolutely. In fact, alcohol is the more dangerous drug. I, I have had... Um, uh, a pathologist told me that years ago, and I and I was highly suspicious that of all the drugs that we could have chosen as a society to um, make the one of choice, you know, the, the the legal substance that we all go to, alcohol is by far the most dangerous. And we know there are so many health-related harms related to alcohol, and alcohol-related uh, harms cost our country billions of dollars every year. But that is a choice that we have decided. To do as a as a country, people want to be able to drink, and do some people get into real problems with alcohol? They do, but we accept that, and um, and we have you know um, 
And we regulate it. To manage that. Yeah. So uh, we regulate it. Of course we do. I mean, we we go to the liquor store and when we buy a a bottle of wine or or whatever we're buying, we know it's safe. Um, So I don't think anybody is uh, saying that taking drugs is a good thing or drinking lots of alcohol is a good thing. uh, But people will. And so, you know, how can we ensure that we, we do that as safely as possible? And some of the mayhem in our communities. Uh, we know right now, and you probably heard me say this at the press conference too, the only people benefiting from the current system are the people who uh, sell the drugs on a large scale. And, and again, not the street, you know, not people doing it uh, on street fronts that they're not making money. They're doing it to support their own needs. Mm-hmm. But people who are raking in you know, tens of thousands, millions of dollars from the illegal drug trade uh, they are the only ones benefiting from from the current structure. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for having me. Take care. Great conversation. Very illuminating. Lisa LaPointe is BC's chief coroner, expanding on our overdose death situation. 2021, the deadliest year we've ever had in this province. And it's changing constantly. How does a system, how does rehab, how does any of that deal with a system where people are dying of a different drug in three to six months? Like, it just seems like an impossible hill to climb. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What is your alcoholic beverage of choice at the end of the day? Well, it probably depends on how old you are. Because if you fall into that millennial age category, you are not as likely to be pouring yourself a glass of wine. Really interesting piece in the New York Times recently about the wine business and how they are seeing a new problem. Millennials aren't drinking enough wine. I mean, they're drinking, don't get me wrong, just not as much wine as previous generations. So they're looking for ways to get the younger generation to skip the White Claws, the Palm Bays, the Smirnoff Ice, all that other stuff, and actually have some wine. So we thought, let's talk to a local expert about this. Chris Prasma is with us now, a level three wine sommelier and French and Italian wine scholar. Chris, thank you for being with us. Hi, Timmy. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So you clearly, you love your wine. <laughs> I do. I am a big fan of wine, yes. Why? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's I think it's the most complex, you know, beverage we can consume in in I mean in this day and age, right? Uh, don't get me wrong, the craft beer, you know, there's tons of skill that goes into making that, but it is, you know, at least in the North American market, it's something that's really been introduced to us in any sort of quality in the past like ten, fifteen years. Where if you go outside of Canada and we start looking at Europe, we've been talking about quality wines that have had you know huge. Names throughout history for the past couple hundred years. How do you become a wine scholar? What kind of education does that take? <laughs> so the 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 WSET which is Wine Spirit Education Trust is actually a school out of London, and it's basically a, a wine, uh, I guess, conglomerate of agreed upon. Uh, education around the wine industry. It is heavily focused on European wine, but we do in that program learn about the rest of the world. Um, It's changed a lot since I've taken it, but the Wine Scholar Guild is another group of school uh, centered out of Europe as well that offers this certification. Okay, so what do you think when you read articles like this that say that, you know, wine sells, people who sell wine, who make wine, they're a little concerned that the younger generation is not as interested in their product? I think they have a 100% valid concern. Um, I think there's been a, a, a lot of pushback from 
the wine industry, and I won't just center out BC wine in general, but we'll call it New World, so outside of Europe, um, against any sort of commitments to environmental sustainability or listing everything that they actually put in the bottle. And none of that's really regulated, especially not in BC right now, of of what that can do. Basically, uh, a winery in BC, as long as the grapes are 100% from British Columbia and it's made in British Columbia, they can call it a BC VQA wine. But then we look to the uh, Food Standard Acts of Canada to regulate what else they can put in there. And I mean, that list is ginormous. Uh, Take a look at, you know, the back of a craft singles there's tons of stuff that we can't even pronounce that we're allowed to eat in and put in cheese and all of that is technically allowed to be put in wine as well so are you saying that that's maybe the difference with craft beer they've got a like you talk about flavors you know what's in there and perhaps a wine has not responded in the same way yeah i mean i i think the, the craft beer in terms of marketing has i mean not only from an approachability standpoint but just from a uh, a standpoint of your own health and knowing what you're consuming they almost every craft brewery I'm, and, I'm, and i don't know the rules around this but almost every craft brewery that i know happily lists what they put in the beer on the label and why do you think wine the industry resists this uh cost <laughs> cost um the i mean the article touches on on how much more expensive it is to get a quality bottle of wine or a wine of of any sort of decent quality and if you're doing things that quote-unquote traditional way in terms of making wine you're you're really we're talking about a handful of ingredients that go into this i mean first and foremost there should be grapes you have to add some water you let a fermentation happen and you then filter out that uh, excess and then you might add some sulfite simply for stabilization but that's not even actually necessary to do it but everything else to go that goes in there to make your wine thicker to make your wine sweeter all of those other things i don't think that how do I say this? Uh, I don't think that our <laughs> wine industry is ready to tell us about those, especially on the bottles that are, you know, say under $30 a bottle. Right. Because you would have to, it's, it's a lot easier to cover up mistakes in the vineyard and the growing season when you can add all these other things in there. Whereas when you can't and you have a bad growing season, you have grapes that are not great, that wine is not going to be good unless you add other things to make it taste good. You know, I'm thinking out there, there's some winery owners right now who think in th- them's are fighting words, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they probably want me to shut up. I, <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I, I, I understand that. And I, I, it's a tough thing to balance. Like, I don't, um, you know, you think about the business side of it, and I, and I feel for them, for sure. Okay. It's also, like, from what you're describing there, it sounds like the wine industry is not telling enough of a story about their product as perhaps other products are. I think that's a hundred percent correct, and I think we're we're a little bit plagued in that in 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 our in the Canadian and U.S. market with wines that are produced in North America, simply because we don't have as much history. Um, but on, on the flip side of that, we're we're also losing out the story and the uh, you know the conversation about the dog that's on the vineyard and how that year was with the person actually making the wine because. A lot of the wine that's produced in, uh, especially BC and, and California, is owned by larger corporations that do it on a mass scale. And I understand why that has to happen, because we, we really, from an affordability standpoint, to make something, a bottle of wine for under $20 is a, is a, is a huge economic undertaking, and you have to have an, an economy of scale in order to do that. 
So they do lose out on the story in order to produce something that's actually affordable to drink, for sure. But, but in this, with this kind of age demographic that we're talking about, can you make it cost a little more if you make it a little more niche? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing that a, a little bit with um, some of the bigger wineries are either doing a biodynamic brand or something to, to create a story with it. But it is going to be tough when you have, when you, you know, you walk into a store and that store carries more than just your British Columbia or your American wines. And you have somebody in there that is probably pat- more passionate about wines from France, Italy, and Spain, probably particularly that, that, that wine professional is going to push that consumer to that because they can talk about it. And right. it's, it's, an, it's an easier thing to, to discuss and you can usually guarantee what's in the bottle. Do you think, is that the future then of the wine industry? Is that the way it has to go if it does want to attract these younger drinkers? I think that and, and actually, you know, marketing to, to them, right? Um, we, I mean, we kind of, I think it's long gone are the days of a wine as an avenue just to get intoxicated or get drunk. Um, it's much more of a celebratory thing or, uh, you know, we have share a bottle over the friend, over dinner with friends. So we need to be, you know, promoting that um, it more and, and maybe talking about food pairings in that. And I think that's the only way that they're, they're really going to get the younger generation to do it. Okay, well, that's, you really helped me to understand this better. So Chris, thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome, Simi. Thanks for having me on. That is Chris Prasma, who's a WSET Level 3 wine sommelier and French and Italian wine scholar, talking about why the younger generation, the millennials, are not as much into wine as the older generations. And you know what? The wine industry is noticing. Question is, can they respond?